Hello, people, and welcome to the People Building Podcast, where today we are joined by the wonderful Matthew Rainwater. Now, Matthew and I have actually been friends for a really long time. I think we cross paths as a result of people building and probably the People Building Podcast. And we have been connected on Facebook for a really long time now. And we've had lots of conversations over the years. And actually during COVID, uh, when it was lockdown, Matthew was kind enough to call me. I actually think he was at work at the time. We had a wonderful FaceTime chat together um, and we've been firm online friends ever since. So I know that Matthew has a really interesting history because he is former military and is now helping military or former military personnel to get back on their feet after their time of service. So I was really enthusiastic about bringing him to the podcast to meet all of you and to also share his lessons in life that he's picked up along the way. Matthew, so let me tell you about him. This is a man with a very strong moral compass and that developed, I think, probably if we go way back, In his early years, he was the child of parents with alcoholism. And so it wasn't the easiest start to life. In fact, he ended up leaving home when he was 17 years old and not by his own volition, as you are about to hear. And from that point, Matthew was just an instant grown-up. He became a husband, a father, a worker. So he started out working in the military, He then moved into military law enforcement before going on to join the Border Patrol uh, services for the United States. So he's got some very interesting stories that he's going to share with you on the podcast today. So without further ado, I shall hand you back to Gemma from the past and the amazing Matthew Rainwater. Go on then. What do we need to say about you, Matthew Rainwater? Um, First of all, yeah, my name is Matthew Rainwater. I am a husband. I'm a father, a grandfather. Uh, I'm an Army veteran. And I spent eight years in the United States Army from 1988 to 1996. Uh, We'll probably get into that a little bit here. Uh, And then I spent over 24 years in federal law enforcement as a U.S. Border Patrol agent. Uh, that's what I've done with my life, but that's not who I am. Uh, who I am, I mean, I am I am a father. I am a grandfather. Uh, but who I am, I feel at my core, is somebody who likes to serve other people and help other people out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that I get a lot of satisfaction in. I will go out of my way uh, to help people. Um, and I also, I'm also one of those people that, that will stand up for what is right and stand against what is wrong. Uh, that's just, it's just become part of my nature. Uh, uh, but on the flip side, I could also go someplace and just be a hermit and live, my, <laughs> live by myself and not interact with anybody or have to do anything and just uh, kind of be anonymous. People pointing fingers at me like, who is that old guy with that shaggy beard? Uh, <laughs> but that's me. Okay. So that's, that's who I am. 
So it sounds like there's a thread of a, a strong moral compass in there. Where did that come from? Is that something from early life that was embedded in you? Um, yes. Uh, I, I mean, I've always had a strong moral compass. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it came from, though. Okay. Um, I didn't grow up going to church, um, although I wound up I wound up going to church, and at one point in my life, I was going with the idea of possibly being a pastor. I even got got in the pulpit, did some preaching at one point. Um, but my my mom and my dad didn't have a strong influence on my moral compass. Okay, uh, so, so I don't I don't really know where it came from. In your family growing up, so mom and dad, you've just mentioned, who else was there living in your house when you were growing up? uh three brothers and a sister okay all right so, so family the, family yeah I'm, I'm the youngest of five okie dokie all right um and what was that experience like for you what was your um home life family life growing up life what was that all like um let me see my siblings and I we got we get along we got along um my mom and and dad were my dad became my hero later in life. Let me, I want to say that first. Uh, but my mom and my dad were both uh, alcoholics. My mom was just a straight up alcoholic. My dad was a functioning alcoholic. Okay. Um, so he was able to keep a job, everything like that while I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, and my mom, she wasn't. Uh, I mean, she worked, but quite often, you know, the, when she wasn't at work, her time was spent in the in the bottle okay. um but yeah so my siblings and i we all got along uh typical youngest child thing i got picked on a lot we had arguments we had fights but when it all came down we all bonded uh and we stick together yeah so, when did you become aware that um your parents were alcoholics like at what age did you recognize that there was something oh happening there that maybe was outside of the norm not the same as what you saw in your your friends parents when did you notice that um i would say early on okay. I, I can't i'm not gonna i can't say i was three four five whatever yeah. but uh probably maybe seven eight um i realized that things were different my parents um they ultimately they were married for over 30 years mm -hmm. um my mom passed away when i was 18 uh and but uh but they my parents always fought yeah they always fought um and I, I mean like violent fights there were times where as a young kid i had to keep my mom literally literally keep my mom from killing my dad wow um he like my dad had fell falling asleep on the sofa and my mom was going to bash him over the head with a statue Oof. and i i remember holding the statue yeah keep my mom as she had it in her hands yeah. um holding the statue on the on the ground keeping her from being able to swing it yeah. begging her not to do it yeah. um so that was that was a typical not typical but that was you know obviously something that sticks with me yes yeah um so that wasn't you know normal yeah but i i, I, I remember from early on incidents like that okay and would you back then would you have talked to your siblings about what was going on like was it oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so you were, you were all aware of the circumstances that you were living in and, and that those were quite strained conditions. Uh-huh, we were. Yeah. What do you guys say about it when you talk about it now? Um, we make jokes about it mm -hmm. because that's a good coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting on the timing of this because we have a reunion coming up uh, in March. And it's going to be probably the first time all five of us have gotten together in 15, 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So, um, well, I take that back. Let me see. Uh, it was my dad died. Um, let me see. 2000s. Okay. Um, well, we're in the 2000s. So, you know, sometimes this. Sometime this century, my dad died. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, um, my dad died a, a few years ago, and uh, um, we were together then. And I think that was probably the last time that we all got together. Okay. And we all realized, hey, all of us are getting older. We're not going to live much longer. Let's get together. Yeah. So we're making it happen in March. That's good. That's good. So you lost your mom, I'm sorry to hear it, quite a young age and, and probably quite an impressionable age as well. Um, and I know from my own experience, when you have a chaotic parent, let's say, to put it politely, um, mm -hmm. that uh, in some ways, it, my experience of, of losing my dad, so my, my dad was a drinker, my experience of losing him was that I felt sad for losing the dad I didn't have rather than the one that I did, if that makes any sense, because yeah. um, it was... It, I think one of the challenges with having alcoholism in your family is you can you can still see the person inside there and you can see the potential of that person that's in there, but you can't necessarily reach them because there is this veil of alcohol that gets in the way, is, is the way I would describe it. So what was what was it like for you, A, losing mum at a young age, but also losing her and knowing that she hadn't been well all of that time? Well. That's going to be a long answer. Go um, I like a okay. long answer here. <laughs> so, okay, you have to, um, let's put this in context, okay? Because um, it goes back to when did I get the moral code that I live by? Okay. I, my, since my mom and dad were always fighting, um, if I thought my mom was wrong, I never had any problem saying, mom, you're acting stupid mm -hmm. or stop fighting. The, us siblings would get together and be like, we, we would wish that they would just get a divorce. Yeah. Because we thought things would be much easier. Um, and so I, I always, um, as a teenager even, um, I was, it got even worse, but I never had any issue standing up to my mom. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one day when I was 17 years old, now, and put this in context, okay, I turned 17 March of 1988. Mm -hmm. So between March and May of 1988, um, at one point, my mom looks at me and says, Matthew, you're 17 years old now. I don't have to put up with you anymore. When you get home from school tomorrow, you need to have a new place to live. Wow. Um, so I went to school the next day, uh, talked to my best friend, who talked to a friend of his that I didn't know, and, got, and I moved in with them. So, you know, by... You know, uh, in by, in March of 88, somewhere between March and May of 88, um, I was 
technically by today's standards, they would, they would consider it homeless. Uh, but I was on my own and I've been on my own ever since. Were you surprised that that happened or yes. you were? Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. like something had been brewing or she'd, you know, maybe kind of dabbled with these decisions and flown off the handle from time to time. This, this came completely left field. It came out of left field. I was, I was shocked. Um, and now, and also to help put this in context, I have a brother who's one year and four days older than me. Mm -hmm. So he was 18. Um, she didn't kick him out. Right. So, uh, you know, it was basically because I was standing up to her and, and, you know, okay. she didn't, she didn't appreciate it. Yeah. And she decided it'd be better to, to get that situation dealt with by kicking me out. Um, yeah. Uh, but. You know, I'm going to say that that wound up being a good thing for my life overall, mm -hmm. uh, because sometime around April of 88, um, one of the conditions of me living with the people that I was living with mm -hmm. was, you know, I, I had to work. Yeah. Um, and, and I was, so they, he had, they had an asphalt company and April of 88 in Georgia, it's springtime, but in Georgia, it's very hot, very humid. And I found myself in a metal tank chipping away old asphalt in the heat. And I was like, this is not where I want my life to go. So yeah. I developed a game plan. I decided I was going to uh, enlist in the military mm -hmm. and turn my life around. Okay. Only problem was I was 17 years old. Right. So I'm going to pause you there. Okay. As this was happening were you still in touch with your family um not really i mean my brother and i both went to school we yeah. were you know uh, he was a senior in high school i was a junior so we went we saw each other in school yeah um and we didn't we didn't really talk about anything that much about the whole situation um but then i wound up i actually wound up quitting school yeah and I was going to get my GED and join the army. Uh, the only problem was uh, Georgia. Uh, GED is generally equa general education uh, uh, diploma. Mm -hmm. So basically high school degree. Yep. Um, and and uh, uh, I went to the city school superintendent because Georgia had just passed a law to where if you quit school, you can't go for your GED until your class would have graduated. Right. But the city school superintendent was was authorized to make exceptions to, to that policy. Okay. So I went to him and I don't even know how I got in to see him. I think I literally just went to the building, said, I want to talk to him. And they said, okay, you can talk to him. Yeah. Um, and I told him that I told him my situation, um, but I embellished it quite a bit. I lied. As a matter of fact, I, I told him that I had gotten my high school girlfriend pregnant and I wanted to do the right thing yeah. and marry her, but I couldn't, I couldn't uh, en enlist in the military to be able to provide for her, uh, but I couldn't do that unless I got my GED. Right. And he said, I'll never forget, he's like, Mr. Rainwater, I, I respect that. I'm going to grant your exception and let you test get your GED so you can join the Army. So between March of 88, I was kicked out of the house homeless quit high school, got my GED, and May of 1988, I enlisted in the United States Army. I went to basic training. Okay. So I wasn't, I wasn't home 
like I wasn't living at home at the age of 18 when my mom died. Okay. Okay. And how was that? Was that, um, did that distance you from perhaps some of the emotion associated with it or did it make it tougher? Um, both, okay. both. It, I was, my, my first duty station was in Fort Benning, Georgia, which was 90 minutes away from my hometown. Okay. So my mom um, went in for a health checkup, went into the doctor for whatever reason. And they were like, oh, you need a, an emergency quadruple bypass. And so I, you know, I, my dad called me and told me, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go home. And also, by the way, at the time I was, I got married, not to my high school girlfriend, because I, I just, I ended it with her. Um, but I'd met somebody else and got married. She's the mother, she's the mother of, of my two daughters. Okay. Um, but I'd gotten married at the age of 17 as well. Right. Um, and so I took 10 days uh, vacation and because everything, all things were like, you know, everything's going to be fine. Um, we'll do the surgery. She'll be home by the end of the week. So I took 10 days vacation and by day 10 when I went back to work my mom had died and was buried wow yeah gosh yeah that's a yeah. very and it it seems almost like you had about 10 years worth of life in the space of a few months uh never thought about it like that but yeah yeah, yeah. You know, most most of those things that you mentioned like they know those kinds of things are normally spread out quite a bit for a person you were married by the time you were 17 that to me sounds crazy <laughs> no it, it, it was um I was we were married we were married for 22 years you did extremely well and then uh um things we realized things weren't working out so we got a divorce yeah. um but yeah but yeah I did a lot of living in at the age of 17 yeah <laughs> You really did. Wowzers. Yeah. So after mom had passed, were you uh, kind of reunited with your family? Did it, it did it maybe make some space for you to um, get back into their lives a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, it did. Um, we were uh, I had a brother. I, two of my brothers had enlisted in the in the U.S. Air Force. Mm -hmm. um, so one brother was you know, in Korea, another brother, I don't, I forget where my brother, where my other brother was, but, uh, um, you know, when that happened, we all got together and, uh, you know, reunited. Um, it's interesting. It wasn't until, oh gosh, 20 years plus that my, cause my, one of my next oldest brother who's still living at home, um, he was actually the one who drove me to the house I was living that I wound up living in. Um, and we didn't talk about that until after my dad passed away. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have some good memories of mom and the time that she was in your life? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually I do. Um, cooking. Okay. My, my mom was a phenomenal cook. Yeah. And that's something I took away from her. I'm not a phenomenal cook, but I like to cook. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because I'll, you know, we did, we didn't get along at all, but I'll always have good memories of like the holidays and my mom's cooking and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. 
Yeah. So tell me about being in the army then. I don't know where to start with that one. Um, I did a lot of growing up in the army. Yeah. Right early on. Um, and I realized that I loved, I loved to serve. Yeah. Um, and I, I loved action. I loved adventure. Uh, I, I knew that going in because when I was going through the whole, you know, enlisting process, they ask you, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I want to be infantry. And they said, why do you want to go infantry? Cause I'm, I'm not a dumb kid. They, they were like, your scores, your testing scores are really high. They're like, why do you want to go infantry? I was like, well, cause I want to jump out of airplanes. I want to go, I want to be airborne. Yeah. And they're like, we can get you on jump status without going infantry. Hang on. And, uh, and so I wound up, you know, picking a job packing parachutes. Okay. Uh, which, which led to some adventurous times. Yeah. Um, and so my first three years in the army, I was jumping out of airplanes. I was packing parachutes, um, wound up doing some stuff supporting, uh, like the army Rangers, um, and, and just having a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, it did, it, I did do a lot of growing up and it shaped me, molded me in, into the guy that I am. There's people that I could point to, uh, cause I was in the army for eight years after three years. I changed my job, went to military police because I knew I wanted to get in law enforcement. Okay. And uh, and met some great people that I'm still in touch with today. Yeah. All these years later. What do you think it was that drew you to, It's it sounds like the general pattern of your work career has, there's been a, a strong thread of discipline, you know, going into the army, uh, law enforcement, all of those are very sort of discipline led. Do you mm-hmm. think that that was almost a bit of a, a kickback and a rebellion from the circumstances that you grew up in? Because, you know, very often if you have parents who are involved in alcoholism, um, there is chaos and uh, it tends to be um, dysfunctional. Whereas going into something like army, law enforcement, is all very disciplined, very routine-led. Do you think that that might have been part of your draw towards it? I I don't think so, to be to be honest. Uh, maybe to to a degree, uh, but it was more along the lines of well, like law enforcement. I had an uncle who was California Highway Patrol. Okay. And I always thought that was really, really cool. And then, like, I remember as a kid, he put me in handcuffs and pretended he lost the key, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, um, that was so, you know, I always thought that was really cool. I, I knew early on in my life that I was going to enlist in the, in the military um, and get in law enforcement. Uh, but I don't know if it's because I was desiring discipline or because I wanted to be able to help people out. And a lot of, you know, um, a lot of that is, you know, the, the military and law enforcement. You know, it's, law enforcement isn't necessarily just about, you know, arresting people and putting them in jail. Lots of opportunities to, to um, actually help people out as well. I never thought I'd get in federal law enforcement um, because I didn't think that I would qualify. Uh, because all I had was a 
you know, basically a high school degree. Uh, but when I was processing, going through the process of getting out of the army, I saw just on a piece of printer, printer paper, U.S. Border Patrol now hiring call 1-800-blah-blah-blah-blah. So I did. And next thing I know, you know, I got out of the army in May of 96, August of 96. I was at the Border Patrol Academy. Wow. So before you get into that one, what were yeah. perhaps some of the pivotal things that happened during your time in the army? Were there certain events or circumstances that you found yourself in that you think might have helped to shape who you became? Yes, um, definitely. I learned how I learned about leadership in the army um, through good examples and bad. I learned I, I learned in the army that you can learn something from everybody. Um, you can either learn a way you want to be or a way you don't want to be. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that's a life lesson that I've taken with me. Um, but also, you know, I, I learned about shouldering responsibility. I learned about what it means to be a leader. Um, yeah. But there was one time when I was in Germany, I was it's in the army, they're called team leaders. You're basically in charge of like two or three people. Um, that's your team. And you take responsibility for them. And if the squad leader is not available, then you're in charge and you're in charge of the entire squad. And I, uh, um, we'd done like a 12, 14 hour day. The entire squad was tired and we had done everything that was on the list to do. And they're like, Rainwater, can we, can we, are we done? Can we go? And I didn't know that I wasn't supposed, that I didn't have the authority to do that, to let, to release right. him. So I released him. I was like, yeah, we're done. Take off, guys. Go home. Went and told the squad leader, hey, I let the guys go. He's like, you know, what the hell did you do that for? <laughs> He's like, we got stuff we got to get done. So I was, I was given the, I was provided the opportunity to make a decision. Do I either call all those people back and say, sorry, guys, or do I do the stuff on my own? So I wound up doing like a 20-hour day. And I did everything else that was on the list. Uh, got the, the just because that I figured that was the right thing to do. So I did everything myself. Um, yeah. So I learned a, a lot of stuff in that. And don't you know overreach your authority because um, yeah. it might hurt. Um, <laughs> but also you know that's that was the right thing to do. Don't yeah. don't you know because I screwed up. Other people shouldn't have to pay. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also learned about constructive criticism. Uh, I, I was doing a lot of whining. Okay. And just complaining about stuff, complaining, complaining, complaining. And this other, uh, NCO, this other Sergeant that wasn't necessarily in my chain of command, but we were in the same company and we knew each other. Uh, he was walking by, uh, and I was complaining about something or whining about something. And he just stopped and he looked at me. He's like, you know what, Rainwater? you'd be a much better soldier if you didn't, if you didn't whine all the time. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because I didn't realize I was whining. And he's like, look, all you're doing is complaining. If you instead, if you see a problem, that's fine. But when you see the problem, try to come up with a solution and point, and point out the possible solution at the same time. Then you're not whining, you're doing constructive criticism. And that's a lot better. And it changed my life because I didn't want to be a whiner. I don't want people nice. to see me as a whiner. So, um, and that's another thing that has led me, you know, through my life.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of, um, there was a head teacher that I knew who ran a Montessori school. And when she would have children that came to her to um, tell tales or tittle tattle, as we say, um, she would say to them, are you bringing me a problem or are you bringing me the solution to a problem? And so she would have these children then who would, you know, go off and think about what she'd said. And then they come to her and instead of saying so-and-so's done this, they would say, um, I'm doing this because so-and-so did that and I'm fixing the problem. I'm just letting you know that I'm fixing the problem. So then she had <laughs> just like problem solving stuff all the time. So yeah, I really like that philosophy. Yeah, it's, you know, that's, and that's something I try to impart. Uh, tried to impart to my kids um, and you know I both my kids are doing great so um, you know nobody's without it, it you know nobody's perfect so there's always some sort of thing that's like I'm down here on it because of the family mercy how about my daughter my grandson um, but yeah you know it's that's try to teach them that those types of life lessons mm -hmm. and I think they'll I think you know people will do great yeah, definitely. Did your children come along whilst you were in still in the army? Yes. Yes. My oldest daughter, um, she was born when I was 18. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, when my mom passed, my wife was pregnant with her. Oh, wow. Um, and then my youngest daughter, uh, who, by the way, just retired from the Marines. Okay. Um, let me see. Uh, she was born just a couple of years later. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Was it challenging having a family whilst also being in the military? Yeah, because you miss them. And there's, there, you know, I made decisions about my military career based off of how much, how much I'll, I'd be able to be around my family. Um, I got, I got to do some pretty neat stuff. And at one point I was thinking about going special forces mm -hmm. and, um, realized that if I did that I wouldn't be around a lot yeah um and so I didn't I didn't go that route mm -hmm. uh you know and then my decision to get out of the army uh was based off of I wanted to be able to spend more time with my family for you was being in the army like having just an unusual job or, or were there ever times when perhaps your safety was in question and and actually you know thoughts of family then might have cropped up about can I be doing this particular part of the job or should I take this particular um, opportunity because uh, it, it may endanger me and therefore I'm not going to be here for my family consciously I didn't that wasn't a consideration okay um I did what I had to do when I was in the army I never saw combat hmm. Um, I was in during the first uh, Iraq war, okay. Desert, Shield, Desert Storm. In the army, when you re-enlist, you can, if you if it's available, you can change your job. And I was like, well, I'll go out and change my job, become military police because they go to combat, they go everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I'll have a better chance of going to combat and actually fighting for my country. Um, but still never wound up going to combat anywhere. So how long did you serve in the army in, in the end? Eight years. Eight years. Okay. Eight years. Yeah. And that includes your time in the military police as well? Yes. Yeah. It was incredible. Worked with some of the best people I've ever worked with. Yeah. 
um, got made lifelong friends, uh, did some good, um, got to help people out, also got to, you know, deal with knuckleheads that want to be, you know, that's want to do stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it gave me, you know, it also helped on my resume when I applied with the U.S. Border Patrol because it was seen as federal law enforcement. So I'd already had five years experience federal law enforcement. Yeah. The very first illegal alien I ever arrested was as a military police. Okay. Um, and the guy was wanted for murder. Wow. And he, but he was working on base. Wow. You know, yeah. So, you know, um, you, deal with, you deal with everything. Uh, military police, at least for the Army. Um, the other branches are different. At least they were back then. But for the Army, the military police, you handled everything. You, you, when you were um, on base, you were uh, just, you were the law enforcement. Right. Um, and if you were deployed to a war zone, you were still law enforcement, but you were also uh, more heavily armored than uh, a typical infantry platoon. So you moved into border control. Border patrol. Border patrol. And what exactly, what exactly did that entail? What was your job there? Here, here in the United States, we have the ports of entry, which is where people come through legally, where yeah. they have visas, passports, yeah. um, and that's handled by customs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Border Patrol handles everything in between the ports of entry. Okay. So we actually, I'm, I'm sure you've seen on the news with all the illegal, all the people coming up through Mexico. I know illegal alien isn't a politically correct term, but that's what they, that's, that's what they are defined by the, it's actually in the law um, that they're illegal, illegal aliens. Um, so, you know, we, ha we patrol everything in between the ports of entry and anybody or anything that's trying to come up between those ports of entry, uh, we have jurisdiction to handle it. And we can go anywhere we need to go to be able to, to investigate and make an arrest. Um, and so it's, it's a wide, it's a wide um, um, area of responsibility. Okay. Was there uh, particular ports that you were responsible for overseeing in your work? Uh, yeah, every, every, like they have different stations mm -hmm. um, and each station has an area of responsibility. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where you go yeah. is in your area of responsibility. Hey, tonight you're working this area. Tonight you're working that area, you know. Um, and in that area, there's different, there's a variance of danger, of mm -hmm. threat. Um, and it's, it's a, a, you know, at, on the southern border, it was super chaotic mm -hmm. uh, almost every night. So, what was happening there that was chaotic? Well, we would get uh, groups of 30, 40 people coming through at one time. And, you know, you're arresting 30, 40 people by yourself with no backup readily available. Um, and that's that was on that was when the weather was good. So the border road at the time, the border road was just dirt. So when it rained, okay, we couldn't be on there because all our trucks would get stuck. Yeah. Uh, and so we would have to pull off to pay it to to actual roads 
and that would just then the area would just get swarmed uh, and we would arrest 12 1300 people in a single shift at my station um and we would lose just about as many and that was all in a single shift mm-hmm. so there was one there was one night i was working and i i preferred working midnights uh and we did 10 we did 10 hour shifts so i would go to work at 11 o'clock at night get home at nine o'clock in the morning whatever uh but i made that decision because that allowed me i would get home get to sleep while my kids were at school i would wake up before they got home and i would be with them all afternoon all evening um and then when they went to sleep i would go to work but um there's like one night i was working and i spotted some people a group coming up and i was counting uh and i stopped counting this group at 150 people there were easily 200 people there wow and everybody was busy um going after uh, you know going after other uh, smugglers and then this group started making a beeline right for me and i was like well you know i can handle 20 or 30 people on my own i'm i'm not gonna handle almost 200 on my own so they were where were they coming from and where were they coming tijuana yeah um so but so you know for for people that aren't familiar um tijuana mexico is directly south of san diego california and tijuana is a is a major hub of the the uh and you know it was always a uh um busy it was always busy for the border patrol uh we were always getting people you know arresting people uh, arresting smugglers um and getting people that were you know when I first when I first enlisted in or got hired on with the border patrol in 1996 the majority of our of the people that we were arresting were all from Mexico um they didn't have a criminal history here here in the United States or anything like that by the time I moved up to Washington State in 2008 um that dynamic had changed we weren't arresting as many people but the people we were arresting were criminals coming back into the country meaning they had gotten through at one point, committed a crime, went to jail, were deported back to Mexico, and they're coming back. So we knew that these were bad apples. Yeah. And was it just themselves that they were trying to get? No, they, 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 they would, yeah, they get paid. Smuggling, smuggling people into the country is, is, is a huge uh, business. Yeah. So smugglers get paid a lot of money. And that's, that's one thing that people don't realize is a lot of times, you know, when people are paying to get smuggled into the country, well, they wind up in places of indentured servitude because the smugglers say, well, you owe us $5,000, $6,000. Well, these people don't have five or $6,000. So the, the smugglers say, well, you're going to work for my organization until you pay it off. And they never, it never gets paid off. I need to go back to the night where you had 200 people headed to okay. <laughs> what happened. Um, I got in my vehicle, yep. turned on all my lights and uh, kind of funneled them to other areas where other agents could help okay. in, in apprehending them. 
Um, and then we got as many as we could, but we didn't get everybody. Wow. What reason do you think these people come from Mexico into the States? Is it, are they fleeing poverty or what is it that they're so keen to get away from or to move into? Like, what did you learn about that during your time in that job? Well, the United States, um, I, I honestly believe there's no other country on, on the earth like the United States, no matter what our political scene is right now or in the future or in the past. The United States is is one of the best countries, is the best country on the planet. Um, and that has a lot, that draws a lot of people. I, I get why people want to come here uh, because they have an opportunity to improve their life. Um, so, you know, that's what draws them. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, that, let me see, if you reduce the supply, you reduce the demand. And we have our, our laws here in the United States, they're not strictly followed when it comes to hiring people. Uh, employers are supposed to make sure that somebody's able to work here legally. Um, and not a lot of employers do that. And enforcement of that, of that law isn't really high on the government's list. Uh, so that's the draw. I do, there are people coming across that really just want to improve their lives, okay? Um, but, you know, we have to, every country has to know, has the right to know who's coming in and why they're coming in. And unfortunately, what we're finding more and more is right now, we've got, you know, the drug cartels are smuggling in fentanyl, okay, um, and all, and meth and all the, all those drugs. And, you know, they're, I don't know if you've heard about this, but now the cartels are smuggling in uh, drugs, uh, the fentanyl pills that are made to look like candy yeah, for kids. And that they're smuggling in enough to be able to kill, like in Washington state, they just recently had a seizure where they seized enough drugs, enough fentanyl that would be able to kill every single person in the state. Wow. Yeah. And that's the type of stuff that's coming through now. And we've got terrorists, we've got everything. We've, they've, the Border Patrol's been arresting terrorists. I, I retired from the Border Patrol in March of 21. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, it's, I'm not 100% up to date. Um, but, you know, we have, they have been arresting terrorists. They have been arresting drug runners. But that's, they're only catching the really, really dumb ones because the border is so wide open right now that, Border Patrol agents can't go out and arrest people because they're busy dealing with the ones that are coming, that are walking up to them at the, at the Border Patrol station saying, hey, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that in the work that you did there, were you involved in catching some like serious bad guys? And, and do you remember having incidents like that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, there's some that I, I can't talk about, mm -hmm. um, but there's, you know, there's always bad people out there that are, you know, that are trying to, trying to hurt you. Um, they'll do whatever they can to get through. Uh, at one point when I got, first got hired on, uh, with the border patrol cartels had a standing order. If anybody could prove that they killed a border patrol agent, they were going to get like $50,000. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's, there's some, uh, um, there's some good stories. There's some bad stories. Um, I prefer like there was one time where I arrested this girl, she was coming across and, and, uh, with a group of people and I was, it's called processing, sitting down, taking her name, stuff like that, getting her, her information. And, uh, and I was talking to her and getting her parents' name and where her parents were born. And one of her parents was an American. Right. And so by talking to her, I realized she's an American citizen. Yeah. And both her parents had died in Mexico. Oh. So I, I got to let her know, hey, you know, you're actually an American citizen. You didn't have to jump the border. Yeah, yeah. And she just started crying oh. because she was so happy because she she wasn't going to have to go back to go back to Mexico or wherever she came from. And she was, you know, we got her someplace to go and she went on and lived her life as, as an American citizen. That's awesome. So yeah. weighing it up, um, how much of it was a kind of, keeping people out versus helping people out? <sighs> um, a lot of it was, was the vast majority of it was keeping people out, but also helping them out by getting them out of bad situations uh, by the smugglers. Yes. You know, I actually um, got into, it's called asset forfeiture. And it's where the government has the authority to take cars and stuff like that that are being used to facilitate crimes mm -hmm. and there were a lot of a lot of times where in the asset forfeiture world i actually want to uh go into dc a couple times to help write up policy stuff like that um but there were a lot of times where people they you know smugglers had stolen cars their army had a program uh where they needed cars because they're teaching they're training soldiers on IEDs, stuff like that. So I started uh, just sending literal truckloads of cars that had been seized and were junk uh, to the army to help train soldiers uh, on how to deal with bombs. Uh, so that was that. That was also very, very rewarding for me. So weighing it up, if you compare the two careers that you had, uh, which obviously have got some crossover, there's some similarity between them. Which of them did you find the most rewarding? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the the army. Really? I'm in the army. Yeah. Yeah, I did I was in the army for eight years, border patrol for over 24. Um, and you know, it was a great job, great career. I have no regrets. But uh, but my time in the army, I, I looked more fondly upon my time in the army than I do as, as a border patrol agent, because there was a lot of frustration uh, with the border patrol, because, you know, there's a lot of things that you could do. Um, politics of the, of the day, you know, kept you from being able to do a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and my last few years up in, like up in Washington state was just really, really frustrating. Yeah. yeah um frustration that came with the job did that what did that do for your stress levels oh it increased it immensely um because you know for for somebody in those career fields or any career 
you know, if, if you get hired on to do something and then bosses say, nope, I know you got hired to do this, but you can't do it. That's it's frustrating for anybody. And when you see people that are basically breaking the law and your hands are tied and you can't do anything, then it gets, it gets really, really frustrating. So what were your coping mechanisms? Unhealthy. You were variety. <laughs> <laughs> I, I aired on the on the unhealthy side. No, I uh I, I not it wasn't all unhealthy. Um, you know, I, I uh um I would work out, I would uh spend time with family, I would just forget it. Um and there were, you know, that was then I also started just started finding other ways to be of service, to to do good. But I decided I'm going to be involved because that's that's kind of become a, a kind of core to who I am is being somebody that is involved and trying to help out, trying to make a difference and trying to help improve things uh, for the community yeah. uh, the best the best that I can. Yeah, which is great. And I, I think the sorts of jobs that you've had have been um I guess maybe vocational would be the right word in that it's it's not just a job, it's a way of life, right? You know, they're, they're the sorts of jobs where it's um, quite consuming of your lifestyle. So the fact that you carved out ways to have other stuff outside of that that was an important focus for you is, is a really healthy way of dealing with that because otherwise you get to retirement age and it's a bit like, oh no, like who am I now? Because all of what I'd carved yeah. out were as a person was invested in that job yeah. so i'm curious because i remember uh, via facebook via the wonders of facebook seeing that once upon a time you'd taken a bit of a, a turn for the worst and that was whilst you were still working if i remember correctly you weren't yet retired yeah i was a uh, 47 if if we're talking about what you're what yes, i think you're talking about <laughs> yeah um and that was at the height of I was really, really busy too. Um, I was still working as a border patrol agent and we we're doing, like I said, 10 hour shifts. I was working the, the swing shift. Um, so I was supposed to work until like two o'clock in the morning. And um, how much detail do you want me to go in? Go for it. I was 47 years old. I was working the swing shift and probably about 11 o'clock at night because I, I was really busy at the time. So on top of working, um, I was president of the Port Angeles Business Association that has weekly meetings in the morning. And you have to, um, you know, part of being president is you're organizing speakers and stuff like that, addressing issues, blah, 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 just really busy. Um, and then I was also, let me see, um, I had started my own nonprofit. Yeah. Uh, and I was the chair of the local, of the Clown County Republican Party. Um, so I was, I was really, really busy and I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. So one night at work, um, I'm out in the woods and nobody around, um, keeping an eye on the border. And, uh, and I'm, I realized I'm not feeling so well. Uh, and my, like my chest was hurting and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, I'm busy. I'm just tired. So I was like, I have nothing going on tomorrow. Uh, I'll be able to get some sleep. 
Um, and I stepped out of my truck and had a cigarette. So then around midnight, I still, if you got some chest pain, (laughs) you know, I found, I found, a uh, maybe not so, maybe not so effective, (laughs) but, uh, around midnight, I wasn't feeling any better. I was actually feeling worse. I was like, you know, if this is something, people would have a hard time finding me. I should probably get to where I can be seen. So I went to someplace that was a little bit more visible um, and had another cigarette. And then uh, around uh, 1230, I was like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to go home. I'm going to call it an early night, go home. Um, Went back to the station and at one o'clock in the morning, just an hour ahead of time before I was supposed to leave, I, I was, you know, looking i had another cigarette um and i googled heart attack symptoms so i was i was, was reading heart attack huh it was like yeah. Mind, yeah yeah i was uh, thank you um but uh i uh uh I, I even told my supervisor i was like yeah i'm going home early i'm not feeling well like i was just outside googling heart attack symptoms man he's like you okay i was like yeah i'm fine i'm just tired so I went home, got cleaned up, laid down in bed, writhed around in pain. Um, finally, around 3.30 in the morning, told my wife, like, I, I need to go to the hospital. Went to the hospital. They're like, yeah, not going to sugarcoat it. You're having a heart attack. So at the age of 47, I was, I was having a heart attack. It was, you know, me being me. Um, I don't really, there's a lot of stuff I just don't take and stress out about a lot, a lot. but uh, I was like, well, I guess I should call my boss, let him know I'm not gonna be at work tomorrow, huh? <laughs> so I had him on, I, I was in the ER, they were pumping me full of morphine and all sorts of stuff. And uh, and I, uh, I called my boss, I was like, hey, I'm not gonna be at work tomorrow. He's like, and I'd woken him up. He was like, okay, why? I was like, well, because I'm at the ER right now having a heart attack. And he was like, a heart attack, are you okay? And I was like, you know, I, excuse my language. Well, I won't say because my grandson's there. I was like, F, no, I'm not okay. I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> ER busted up laughing. Um, and so, you know, got that situation dealt with. Wound up having a, a quadruple bypass. Oof. With, and I, I will say that was a tough one for me yeah. um, because of the way my mom died. Because my mom had to have an emergency quadruple bypass she was going to be home by the end of the week, but, but by the end of the week, she was dead. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was a tough pill for me to swallow uh, because I, I was, I resisted. I was like, no, no, I'm not going to have one. They're like, well, if you don't have one, you're going to die. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, after they explained it to me, my wife and I, we, you know, okay, I'll have the bypass. Yeah. So I made it through that. Um, pro tip for anybody that might be facing that type of surgery, um, shave your arms. Okay. Because all the tape from the tubes and stuff that they stick in you, when they pull it off, if you have hairy arms, it hurts like the dickens. Okay. So, you know, it might be kind of embarrassing, but you know, shave your arms. Yeah. Um, I did that. They sent me home between the, between my heart, the after my heart attack, between the, before I had my surgery, they sent me home. 
Um, and so I shaved my arms before the surgery. Yeah. Um, I remember telling the doctor, I was getting really nervous the morning of the surgery. Um, and I, I told my doctor, I was like, look, if you don't give me something to calm down and calm me down, I'm not going to have this. So next thing I know, I was really happy. <laughs> I was like, cut away. <laughs> so how long was your surgery? How long did it take? Um, I don't know. I was asleep for it. Okay. <laughs> it took a few hours. It took a few hours. Uh, I remember also telling my doctor, I was like, look, you know, it just so happened that my, um, one of my granddaughters had just been born and my daughter was living uh, in the area of the hospital. Yep. And so my youngest daughter had come up uh, to see the new baby and to see me. Um, their mom had come out to see the new baby. And, uh, and then all that happened with me. So we were all able to go out for dinner the night before my surgery. I had my wife with me. I had, you know, my entire family there. They wanted pizza. Um, I had a salad. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, but I remember telling, I told my doctor, I was like, don't let me die. Cause I don't want my last meal to have been a salad. <laughs> so, but yeah, the surgery took a few hours. Um, and I, I woke up, I, I tend not to sleep uh, really well anyway, but I woke up way earlier than anybody expected. Um, as a matter of fact, they had just sent everybody, they had told everybody, he's going to be out for hours. So if you need to go do something, go do it. So everybody took off. And next thing you know, they're calling. He's awake. He's awake. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and then recovery from that, you know, uh, was, was interesting. Um, you don't, so a lot of people don't pay attention to when they stand up and sit down, but you're always using your arms uh, for that type of stuff. And after the surgery, you can't. Right. So because you can't lift anything over 10 pounds okay. and the average person weighs a little bit more than 10 pounds. Um, and so you have to learn, you know, I had to concentrate and just stand up with using my core um couldn't use my arms to assist me um uh there was one night it was funny <laughs> um it was it was really funny because i i wound up sleep I, I was having a hard time sleeping and it was shortly after my surgery and i went out to the sofa and i fell asleep sitting up uh well in my sleep i fell over onto my side and I woke up and I had to use the bathroom really, really bad. And I couldn't use my arms to help me sit up and I couldn't sit up and I was struggling and struggling. And my wife came out from the bedroom and she looks at me, she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I've got to pee and I can't sit up. So <laughs> she had to come help me sit up. So thankfully made it to the bathroom. That's good. <laughs> so were there uh, some lifestyle changes that came about off the back of that experience? Um, yes and no. They do cardio rehab. You basically go in and do some cardio workouts. Um, yeah. And I got in incredible shape. Um, and, I, you know, retired and lost all that. Uh, but also, you know, um, you, I have to be more, more, I'm more self-conscious about certain things. Um, especially cause there's still, 
you know, there is something that's going to affect you for the rest of your life, obviously. Uh, when you have a bypass, they split your sternum open to get to everything, and then they wire it shut. Well, they're not going to reopen it, take those wires off once the sternum heals. Um, so, you know, the rest of my life, I've got metal in my chest. Uh, first time I ever flew after the surgery, I was asking, you know, security, I was like, hey, do I, is the metal detector going to go off because of this? Like, yeah, hey, you should be good. I was like, okay. Um, you know, they, they harvest the vein out from your leg. Um, so you've, I've got the scars in there every now and then because I, I'm 52 now, I think. I forget how old I am. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I've taken a, um, I still feel it at the scars. Uh, but also, you know, one thing I kept with me is I don't really use my arms a lot when I'm standing up or sitting down. Oh, wow. So you got some core strength there, Ben. Uh, yeah, it's hidden. Yeah. It, it, it's hidden behind some fat, but. <laughs> Did you stop smoking? For a while. <laughs> so I was uh, in 2019. Um, I went down to, I had to go down to El Paso and work because the the crisis of everything coming up uh of all the people coming through and it was on the one year anniversary of of the heart attack and stuff i was like you know what i'm gonna at 11 12 and 1 i'm gonna have i'm gonna have a cigarette just to commemorate right and then you know occasionally i still smoke i hate saying that in front of my grandson um but you know, it's I have it's not something I've picked up, yeah, regularly. But you know, that's one of those things that the urge stays with you for your entire life. I don't know if you've ever smoked. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I've worked with lots of people that wanted to stop smoking, and the thing that I learned from a therapeutic perspective is they can never have just one. It's it's kind of like the urge will still be there. And yeah. you cannot bow to it because if you do, you'll be coming back to see me for a second, third, fourth session because yeah. you convince yourself, no, I can have one and one will be fine. That's it. It's already over because you yeah. can't. <laughs> it's, it's, like an, it's like an alcoholic, yeah. you know, when they stop drinking. And I, I've got to say that I want to say this. I should have said it sooner. Um, but I know I said earlier that my dad became my hero yeah. um, before he died. Um, and that he, he, I, I truly meant that he actually wound up, he stopped drinking, um, and he got remarried and he was just a phenomenal guy. Uh, and I found out that, you know, I realized later on that, um, my dad and my mom didn't get a divorce because my dad knew that my mom would get, the, would get us kids and we would be in bad shape and we would be miserable. And that's why he stayed with her to try to be a positive influence. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but you know, my dad, my dad got diagnosed with lung cancer and they're like, you got like a year to live. Just... And he was like, well, why bother quitting smoking now? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of those things he, you just don't quit, but he did quit drinking. Um, and he never, he never drank again after he stopped. Uh, so that, that was phenomenal, but he struggled. And were you able to, because obviously you'd moved out of home at quite a young age, were you able to 
reconcile with him and spend time with him before he passed away? Oh, yeah. Yeah. After his diagnosis, I was in San Diego with the Border Patrol. And uh, um, I was, I, I, after I heard about it, um, I, I was, you know, I was praying. And I was like, I just want to get out there and uh, um, pray with him before, you know, before he goes. Um, but the one wrinkle in that is my dad never talked about religion, never talked about faith, never talked about anything like that. Um, and so I, uh, I was able to get out there towards the end. I was able to get it out there and see my dad. And I noticed all these books, like mention God, stuff like that. So we had a, we had a good conversation. And then before I uh, flew back to San Diego, Last time I saw him conscious, we were able to pray together. That's lovely. And, yeah. Anyway, why'd you do that, Gemma? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, it's a good yeah. memory, right? It is. It is. So, uh, um, so yeah, we definitely reconciliation. Uh, you know, my my dad loved the fact that I was in the army. Mm -hmm. Um when I graduated from jump school, he was there, uh, which was, which, and that's, you know, another powerful memory is, and this takes some explanation, um, and stop me if, if I'm rambling, but I was the youngest person going through jump school at the time in my class. And with that, they have a tradition. It was called keeper of the wings where they basically give you a set of jump wings and your job is to hang on to those and not lose them or not do something to get them taken away. Uh, and you also always march at the front of the formation with the uh, flag bearer. And if you ever got dropped for push-ups, then the, the entire class had to get uh, dropped with you. And uh, they would, you know, somebody would shout, keep the wings is down, everybody down. And so at my jump school graduation, um, my dad's there and I, I had a, a, a command sergeant major pin my wings on me and then he dropped me. So I drop and I do pushups and somebody shouts, keep, keep the wings down, everybody down. And so then the entire company drops and starts doing pushups right there. And my dad was like, Matt, that was really impressive. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Lovely. So what now, what, what does the future hold for you? Um, you know, I'm figuring that out, to be honest. Um, I've got my nonprofit. Um, uh, it's Pennies Reporters. We're working on building tiny houses for homeless veterans. Um, getting that up and running. It's taking longer than I than I'd hoped, but we're making progress. Um, and finding ways to be involved. I uh, I made a stab at politics. I ran for office. Didn't win. Um, if I had, it, it was, it was, uh, it was quite the experience. Um, you know, politics is brutal yeah. and I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't want to be that type of politician, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I think I didn't, I wasn't as successful as I could have been. Mm -hmm. Um, but I learned a lot. Of, I learned a lot out of that. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, focusing on being a good husband, uh, being a good father and grandfather, 
you know, um, I love the fact that like something comes up, boom, I'm able to go and I don't have to worry about getting up and going to, going to work. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, yeah, focusing on, on my nonprofit is, is the key thing last year. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time on the campaign trail, uh, but this year, you know, it's all about my nonprofit and seeing what I can do. There might be some moves coming up. Yeah, definitely. So what do you need to do to get that nonprofit doing the things that you want it to do? So what, okay. So what my nonprofit is, is, uh, it's called Pennies for Quarters. Um, we're trying to build a community of tiny houses for homeless veterans in the area. There's a lot of them in, in the area where I live. There's probably upwards of a hundred plus. Um, and we're trying to build a community of tiny houses to give the veterans and their spouses or significant others, um, if they're homeless, a place to stay for a couple of years while they get back on their feet. Right. And we're trying to, you know, we're going to provide them three meals a day. Um, give, we're going to have AA meetings, NA meetings, you know, as, if they're going to be part of the program, because um, the goal is to get them back on their feet, okay. not just get them out of the public's eye, yeah. but to help them lead productive lives like they were leading when they were in the military. And, uh, and so, you know, we're going to have counseling available for them. They're also going to have to agree to no drug use. Yeah. Um, if they come to us and they have, you know, addiction issues, then that's one thing, but they can't keep them. Um, so they're, as part of the program, they're going to have to do a monthly year analysis. And if they fail that year analysis three times, then we're going to, the board is going to make a decision as to whether they're trying to take us for a ride. Or if they're just having issues, then we'll deal with each accordingly. Yeah. You know? um, and, and, you know, success for us will be, you know, when we get somebody, get to get somebody that was homeless into a place to where they can function and live on their own or with as little assistance as possible. Yeah. Uh, and we'll give them two years to do that. Okay. And so are you um, fundraising or are you applying to other organizations to ask for funding? How are you, how are you getting We're fundraising. Uh, we do fundraisers, but we're also now, you know, because we bought property and, and, you know, we bought property in 2019 and then COVID happened right. uh, and everything kind of stopped. Life just kind of stopped yeah. and it was really hard to get anything done. But now we're getting, we've got plans developed and ask a, so it's called a hearing examiner, basically a judge in a public hearing where people have the right to participate. Um, he makes a decision if our, if, if we can move ahead with our plans or if we need to adjust our plans. Okay. Um, and we're in a position now to where we're about to submit our plans, our plans to the hearing examiner um, and then start developing our property and start building. We've We've partnered with another nonprofit that's going to be building um, our tiny houses uh, out of, you know, out of this fabulous material that's really strong, really durable, um, and it's got a great look. And the key thing is, like I said, durable and strong uh, because, you know, people are working out, people that are going to have issues, and a lot of times when they're having issues or having episodes, they get destructive. Well, they won't be able to hurt the walls. So, so, yeah, they might be able to break a lamp, but they're not going to break the walls. 
Gotcha. So it'll be lower maintenance. Awesome. So if people wanted to find out more about that organization that you've got set up there, or even to um, look at making a donation, is there a place that they can go to to find more information about it? Our website, penniesforquarters.org. That's pennies and then F-O-R quarters.org. Um, and a lot of people, they ask, what's the meaning of the name? And in, in the military, you know, it's not a house, it's living quarters. Okay. So we say pennies, any size donation yeah. is appreciated for living quarters. Got it. Nice. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, when do you hope that you might have the first person in housed and running through the program? Tomorrow. That's <laughs> not realistic. It's not going to happen, but I, I, I hope that could happen. Uh, but realistically, uh by the end of the year okay all right yeah yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of places that build uh tiny houses mm -hmm. um but it's not the quality that you know that uh, that we want yeah. um and they don't have a plan that we have mm -hmm. so you know it's it's taking a little bit more time but once it gets it gets up and running it's going to be a success. I've gotten the attention of some of our U.S. rep, our house state house representative, um, and I've got I've got friends that um, are willing to to support. We just need to get farther along, and once we get like once we start developing, then we be, become eligible for grants and things like that. Um, I hate the strings that come with grants, especially from the government, yeah. but we're at a place to where we need them. Yeah. You know, we'll deal with the strings. Yes. Yeah. I wish you so much luck with that. It sounds like such a worthwhile uh, project. And also, I can imagine this is something that's going to be really close to your heart because I'm sure that you have stayed in touch with so many of your veteran friends from when you're in the army and, and have probably kind of seen the different sorts of experiences they've been through. And I'm sure there's, you know, been yeah. a good with, with challenging times. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a bond between service members, veterans, that um, nobody, that it, it's really hard for people to understand, yeah. you know? Um, there's like inner service rivalries. If I, no matter what branch of service I hear some somebody's from, you know, one of the first things you do is you make fun of them. Yeah. You know, Marines like to eat crayons, whatever. Air Force, you know, they're pampered, um, yeah. stuff like that. But and so we can make fun of each of, of each other that way. But if somebody who's never served tries to make fun of somebody, we're all gonna jump on them. We're all gonna jump in. Like, shut up, you don't know what you're doing, you know? Um, and so, but yeah, that, and that's that's a lifelong bond because you're literally, you know, you've literally said, I'm willing to die with these people. Yeah. And that builds a closeness like you like you'll never know. You've never known. Um whether you like somebody personally or not, you're like, I'll die for you. Yeah. Um, and so that's where that bond comes from. And there is the discipline, there is all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it's, it, it is close and personal. That's, that's, as a matter of fact, I developed Penny's Reporters was my idea. Um, and it came about because I started hearing about issues with veterans here in the, here in the United States, the VA is famous for being just horrible mm 
for veterans. Um, there were, you know, there's lots of stories uh, out there about veterans that were at the VA, couldn't get the help they needed, went out to the, their car and killed themselves. Gosh. And I'm like, there's got to be something that we can do to make it better. And I came up with the idea of tiny houses to help out um, and started talking to people because I knew nothing about nothing when it comes to homelessness. I know about veterans. I know what veterans go through, but I knew nothing about homelessness. And so I started, you know, talking to people because that's what I, I do. Help me understand this. And I found out and then I realized, you know, a lot of veterans or a lot of them are dealing with PTSD, um, addiction issues. Um, mental health issues. And I was like, well, then we have to help deal, deal with those issues. We can't just be like, here's a place to live. We have to be able to equip them yeah. uh, to get the services that they need. So we're going to have it all right there in, on, on, the, on the grounds. We're going to have people coming in to help out with that. Although you say you, you don't know about homelessness, but if we go full circle back to when you were 17, actually you do. Yeah, I know. I know. I realized that as I started doing research, I was like, oh, technically I was homeless when I was 17. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that is full circle. Yeah, 100%. Matthew, how have you found the experience of chatting with me today? It has been incredible. I didn't expect to get teary-eyed. I have this effect yeah. on people, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. You know, I've ne I'll, I will say I've, I've never been much of a crier. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, get me talking about my dad, I'll tear up. Yeah, well, I think sometimes um, it's, it's important to express those sorts of feelings, even though they might not always feel comfortable, but it's good to process stuff, right? It is. It is. And I, if, if, if this conversation that we've had has, is, helps anybody, I'm happy. 100%. I really hope that people go check out the penniesforquarters.org website and take a look at the work that you're doing there because it sounds tremendous. It is without question much needed. Um, and, you know, uh, I think for anyone who has had the good grace to serve their country, um, the very least that everyone else can do is to make sure that they've got a roof over their head and and the support that they need from any traumas that they have associated from that help that they gave us. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I think so. I think that's the minimum that you know people you know understand. And I know that you know there are some people that just don't want the help. Yeah. And you know for whatever reason, uh, but you know for those that want the help. The help should be there. Yeah, 100%. Well, I wish you every success with it. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so Thank much. You. It's been a blast anytime. Okay, so what did you think of Matthew? Do you love him? Um, I know I say that, but I think I'm very fortunate that the people that I get to speak to on this podcast are always just the loveliest, most wholesome people. And... There is something about doing this show which is different to the other videos that I create for NLP for Kids, for example, in that I feel like these conversations, I get borrowing benefits from them. I feel like there's always something that I personally learn 
or it reframes my personal life experience by hearing about somebody else's challenges. And I really hope that it serves you in a similar or even better ways when you get to hear these conversations. So let's have a look at the conversation I had with Matthew there and do some digging. So I noticed that for all of my um, therapeutic friends out there, for all of my coaches, you will have spotted, I'm sure, the dissociated language. So dissociated language is when there is a subject area that applies to you, but rather than owning it and saying, it's about me, um, we third person it in some way. So we put it outside of ourselves. And typically we do that on an unconscious level when we're talking about something that is uncomfortable for us in some ways. So for example, when Matthew was talking about giving up smoking, which I probed him on a little bit there, if you smoke, giving up smoking is one of the best things you can do for your health. Okay, just let me drop that in there. Anyway, he said the urge stays with you in reference to smoking. What he meant to say was the urge has stayed with me so that he's owning that problem rather than putting the problem onto me in the conversation. I do not have the urge. Um, and then I thought this was also a symptom of that dissociated language as well. When he said uh, regarding his heart bypass, they do some recovery, uh, they do some cardio recovery work. So the reason why that to me sounds a bit dissociated is because it's almost like the the difficulties around his heart are outside of him. They do some cardio recovery work on that heart over there rather than I had some cardio recovery work for my heart. So again, it's a subject area where um, it's potentially, you know, a bit tender, a bit sensitive. And so he's unconsciously putting that tricky bit outside of himself rather than saying, this is mine, it's in me, this is what happened to me. All right, what else? Um, oh, God love him. So this part, uh, which happened towards the end when he said, I don't know about homelessness. And you will have heard that I pulled him up on that and said, yes, you do. You do know about homelessness. And he went, yeah, I know that I know about homelessness. Um, and he, uh, he acknowledged that he had been made homeless. I think that there's such significance in that rejection that he experienced at 17 years old. It has influenced, I'm sure, the decision that he's made, the choice that he's made for helping homeless veterans. He could have helped veterans in a million other ways, but he's literally homing these people. So of course, there must be a correlation between that and this early um, you know, he was still really a kid at 17 years old, going through that rejection that he experienced from mum where she made him homeless. And the other thing that I think um, validates what I'm saying here is at one point he said, I was on my own and I've been on my own ever since. Now that is untrue. Matthew, if you're listening to this, that's not true, my friend. You are not alone. Most definitely not. You have not been on your own ever since because you have a wife, you have your kids, you have your grandkids, you have your friends across the pond. Um, so you are absolutely not alone. But I think that that was almost a Freudian slip from back when you were 17 years old 
That was probably the mentality that you took on in those early stages of being rejected and made homeless by mum, that you realised I am on my own and I'm going to be on my own now. Well, that was true then, but it isn't true anymore. So for all of you that are listening, just take a moment to listen to the stories that you're telling yourself and the ones that unconsciously leak out of your mouth because they might be based on a really old narrative and now we're in a brand new chapter. You don't need to believe that stuff anymore. And finally, uh, I wrapped things up with Matthew asking him what the um, experience had been like of speaking with me on the podcast that day and he said that it's good to process stuff. And if nothing else, you know, it would be very easy to uh, watch a conversation like that and say, well, she wasn't doing NLP. She wasn't doing this. She wasn't doing that. This wasn't, this wasn't a therapy session. But actually, whenever you talk to someone about their experiences and their history and the challenges they've had in their life, you are giving their brain the opportunity to process that information in a new and healthier way, to make sense of it, to box things up, to delete things that they no longer need to focus on. And so anytime you have a conversation that's highly focused in the way that we were when we were speaking to each other, you are helping them to process their stuff and to with any luck, feel lighter and freer on the other side of doing that. So thank you all so much for watching and listening to this one. If you liked it, make sure you go ahead and give it a big fat thumbs up on YouTube. Give it five stars on whatever podcasting platform you are listening to and make sure that you are subscribed to the channel so that next time I get a video uploaded, which hopefully won't be quite as big a gap as this one was. Sorry about that. Life's been happening. That's a whole other story. Um, yes, next time I get a podcast uploaded, uh, you will be subscribed to the channel already. And if you're on YouTube, click the notifications bell so that you actually get the notification to tell you when a new episode is available for you. But for now, thank you all so much for watching and listening and I'll see you all next time. Bye. People Building Podcast was produced and edited by Gemma Bailey. You can find out more information about our products and services on peoplebuilding.co.uk where you can also join in the conversation around specific episodes. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. It should not be considered professional advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, we do not endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information product process service or organization that is presented within the podcast and information from this podcast should not be referenced